In this recording, we will resume our personal reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. Um, this is just a personal reading that we've been going through chapter by chapter, and I thank you for joining us um, through this survey of church history. I think it's very important for Christians to have at least some grasp of church history, um, and this is uh, being... This, this reading here that we're doing together is in fulfillment of a class that I am taking through the Master's University. It's a class called Church History, and these are the required reading chapters that I'm bringing you along with me uh, through. Today we come to chapter 12 in the section titled The Supremacy of the Old Catholic Imperial Church from 313 A.D. to 590 A.D., and this is chapter 12. This is just a personal reading. There will be words and names um, that I am unfamiliar with, and therefore I will probably mispronounce. So please forgive me for the mispronunciation of any words that may seem common to you. Please forgive me for that. Um, but today we come to chapter 12, and this chapter is titled, uh, Conciliar Controversy and Creedal Development. Between 313 and 451 AD, theological controversies resulted in councils attempting to resolve the issues of formulating creeds. There have been two great eras of theological controversy in the church, in the history of the church. The great creeds of Protestantism were hammered out in the period of theological dispute at the time of the Reformation. The earlier period of theological controversy occurred between 325 and 451 AD when universal or ecumenical councils of leaders of the church were held to resolve conflicts. These councils brought about such great universal formulations of the Christian church as the Nicene and Athanasian creeds. It was the era when the main dogmas of the Christian church were developed. The word dogma came through the Latin for, from the Greek word dogma which was derived from the verb dokio. This word means to think. The dogmas of doctrines formulated in this period were the result of intense thought and searching of the Bible and the writings of the fathers in order to interpret correctly the meaning of the scriptures on the disputed points and to avoid erroneous opinions. The era is also an excellent illustration of how intense zeal for a doctrine may unwittingly lead an individual or church into error unless there is a balanced study of the Bible. Just as Sibelius was led to, to a denial of the essential trinity by his attempt to safeguard the unity of the Godhead, so Arius became involved in an anti-scriptural approach to the relation of Christ to the Father in his attempt to escape what he thought was the danger of polytheism. One might wonder why major controversy or over theological questions came so late in the history of the ancient church, but in the era of persecution, allegiance to Christ and the scriptures took precedence over the meaning of, of particular doctrines. The threat from the state forced the church to internal unity in order to per present a united front. Then, too, Constantine's attempt to unify the empire in order to save classical civilization meant that the church had to have a unified body of dogma if it was to be the cement to hold the body politic, politic together. One empire must have one dogma. 
The method adopted by the church to resolve the vital differences of opinion concerning the teachings of the scriptures was the ecumenical or universal council, usually called and presided over by the Roman emperor. There were seven councils that were representative of the whole Christian church. Great church leaders, mainly from the eastern parts of the empire, represented their respective localities and gave their assistance in the working out of solutions to the theological problems that dominated the thinking of Christians in this era. Roman numeral one, theology, the relationships of the persons in the Trinity. Heading A, the relationship of the Son to the Father in eternity. The problem of the relationship between God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ became an acute problem in the Church soon after the cessation of persecution. In Western Europe, Tertullian, for example, insisted on the unity of essence in three personalities as the correct interpretation of the Trinity. Hence, the dispute centered in the eastern section of the empire. It must be remembered that the church has always had to fight Unitarian conceptions of Christ. Modern Unitarianism has had its forerunners in Arianism and 16th century Socinianism. In 318 or 319 AD, Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, preached to his presbyters on, quote, the great mystery of the Trinity in unity, end quote. One of the presbyters, Arius, circa 250 to 336 A.D., an ascetic scholar and popular preacher, attacked the sermon because he believed that it failed to uphold a distinction among the persons in the Godhead. In his desire to avoid a polytheistic conception of God, Arius took a position that did, injust did injustice to the true deity of Christ. He said, quote, There was time when he was not, end quote. The issue was soteriological in nature. Could Christ save man if he were a demigod, demigod, less than true God, and of a similar or different essence from the Father, as Eusebius and Arius respectively asserted? Just what was his relationship to the Father? The controversy became so bitter that Alexander had Arius condemned by a synod. Arius then fled to the friendly place of Eusebius, palace of Eusebius, the bishop of Nicodemia, Nicomedia, who had been his schoolmate. Since the dispute centered in Asia Minor, it threatened the unity of the empire as well as that of the church. Constantine tried to settle the dispute by letters to the bishop of Alexandria and Arius, but the dispute had gone beyond the power even of a letter from the emperor. Constantine then called a council of bishops of the bishops of the church to work out a solution to the dispute. The council met at Nicaea in the early summer of 325. Between 250 and 300, bishops of the church were present, but fewer than 10 were from the western section of the empire. The emperor presided over the first session and paid all costs. For the first time, the church found itself dominated by the political leadership of the head of the state. The perennial problem of the relationship between church and state emerged clearly here. But the bishops were too busy dealing with theological heresy to think of that particular problem. 
Three views were put forth at the council. Arius, who was backed by Eusebius of Nicomedia, to be distinguished from Eusebius of Caesarea, and a, minor, and a minority of those present insisted that Christ had not existed from all eternity, but had a beginning by the creative act of God. Arius believed that Christ was of a different or heteros essence or substance from the Father. Because of the virtue of his life and his, his obedience to God's will, Christ was to be considered divine. But Arius believed that Christ was being created out of nothing, was a being created out of nothing, subordinate to the Father, and of a different essence from the Father. He was not co-equal, co-eternal, or co-substantial with the Father. To Arius, he was divine, but not deity. Athanasius, circa 296 to 373, became the chief exponent of what became the orthodox view. His wealthy parents had provided for his theological education in the, in the famous catechetical school of Alexandria. His work, De Incarnation, presented his idea of the doctrine of Christ. At the council, this young man, slightly over 30, insisted that Christ had existed from all eternity with the Father and was the same essence, homosusios, as the Father, though he was a distinct personality. He insisted on these things because he believed that if Christ were less than he had stated him to be, he could not be the Savior of mankind. The question of man's eternal salvation was involved in the relationship of the Father and the Son, according to Athanasius. He held that Christ was co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial with the Father, and for these views he suffered exile five times. The largest party was led by the gentle scholar and church historian Eusebius of Caesarea whose dislike of controversy led him to propose a view that he hoped would be an acceptable compromise. He proposed a moderate view that would combine the best ideas of Arius and Athanasius. Over two hundred of those present followed the, his views at first. He taught that Christ was not created out of nothing, as Arius had insisted, but that he was begotten of the Father before time in eternity. Christ was of a like, or homoi, or similar essence to the Father. His creed became the basis of the creed that was finally drawn at Nicaea. But that one differed from his in its insistence on the unity of essence, or substance, of the Father and the Son. Orthodoxy gained a temporary victory at Nicaea by the, assert by the assertion of the eternal eternity of Christ and the identity of his substance with that of the Father. However, the creed formulated here must not be confused with the Nicene Creed used by the church today, although that creed is similar to the one formulated at Nicaea. The Creed of 325 stops with the phrase, quote, and in the Holy Spirit, 
end quote, and is followed by a section condemning Arius's views. Between 325 and 361 AD, under Constantine and his sons, Orthodoxy had to face a reaction that led to its defeat and the temporary victory of Arianism. A second reaction against Orthodoxy, with Orthodoxy's final victory in 381 AD, came between 361 and 381 AD. Theodosius, in 381, defined as the faith of the true Christians the views formulated by the Orthodox at Nicaea, but the years between 325 and 381 were marked by bitterness and contention. Gregory of Nyssa, circa 330 to circa 394, a teacher of rhetoric, became bishop of Nyassa about 371. He defended orthodoxy against Arianism in 381 AD at Constantinople. He was the first to make a distinction between essence or substance and person in discussion of the Trinity. Gregory of Nazianzus, circa 330 to 390 AD, also opposed Arianism in 381 orally and in his theological addresses. The Council of Constantinople in 381 stated in Canon 1 of its decisions that the faith of the, three, of the 318 fathers at Nicaea quote, shall not be set aside by sh but shall remain dominant. End quote. The present Nicene Creed approved at Chalcedon in 451 is in all probability based on Syro-Palestinian creeds, much as the Jerusalem Creed of Cyril's writings. This creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed are the three great universal creeds of the Church. Arianism, to which Modernism and Unitarianism are both related, was rejected as unorthodox doctrine, and the true deity of Christ was made an article of Christian faith. Arianism did spread among Goths, Vandals, and Lombards. Although the decision at Nicaea became a factor in the eventual split between the Eastern and Western churches, that must, that must not blind us to the value of that decision for our faith. Nicaea cost the church its independence. However, for the church became imperial from this time and was increasingly dominated by the emperor. The church in the west was able to rise above this domination, but the church in the east never freed itself from domination by the political power of the state. Heading B. The Relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Father Macedonius, bishop of Constantinople between 341 and 360, most likely taught that the Holy Spirit was, quote, a minister and a servant, end quote, on a level with the angels, and that the Holy Spirit was a creature subordinate to the Father and the Son. This was a denial of the true deity of the Holy Spirit, and was, a, was as harmful to the, con, to the conception of the Holy Spirit as the views of Arius were to conception of Christ, to the conception of Christ. The Ecumenical Council of Constantinople condemned these views in 381 AD. When the Creed of Constantinople, our Nicene Creed, 
was recited at the Third Council of Toledo in 589, the words, quote, and the son, end quote, filiqui, were added to the statement, quote, that proceedeth from the Father, end quote, which is concerned with the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son. The Western churches since then have insisted on the true deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit as co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial with the Father and the Son. Roman numeral 2. Christology. Controversies over the relationship between the natures of Christ. The settlement of the theological question concerning the eternal relationship of the, of the Son to the Father at Nicaea raised new problems concerning the relationship between the human and divine natures of Christ in time. Before the orthodox doctrine of the relationship of the two natures was finally formulated, many scenes of passion and violence occurred. In general, those theologians linked with Alexandria emphasized the deity of Christ, those with Antioch, his humanity at the expense of his deity. A view of the two natures of Christ that did injustice to Christ's true manhood was developed by Apollinarius, three, circa 310 through circa 390 A.D., a converted teacher of rhetoric and bishop of Laodicea, Apollinarius developed his peculiar doctrine concerning the natures of Christ when he was about 60. Until that time, he had been a good friend of Athanasius and had been one of the leading champions of orthodoxy. In an attempt to avoid the undue separation of the human and divine natures of Christ, an attempt to avoid the uh, Apollinarius taught that Christ had a true body and soul, but that the spirit in man was replaced in Christ by the Logos. The Logos, as the divine element, actively dominated the passive element, the body and soul, in the person of Christ. He stressed the deity of Christ, but minimized his true manhood. His view was, was officially condemned at the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. <clears throat> in contrast to the view of Apollinarius was the view developed by Nestorius, circa 381 through circa 452 AD, a scholarly, scholarly monk who became Patriarch of Constantinople in 428 AD. Nestorius disliked the use of the term Theotokos, God-bearer, as a name for Mary, the mother of Jesus, because it seemed to exalt her unduly. He offered the word Christotokos as an alternative, arguing that Mary was only the mother of the human side of Christ. By so arguing, he made Christ out to be a man in whom Siamese twin fashion the divine and human natures were combined in a mechanical union rather than in an organic union of natures. Christ was in effect only a perfect man who was morally linked to deity. <clears throat> he was a God-bearer rather than the God-man. 
leaders of the church gathered in Ephesus in 341 and led by Cyril of Alexandria condemned this doctrine. But the followers of Nestorius continued their work in the eastern section of the empire and carried the gospel as they conceived it to Persia, India, and even China in 635 by Alopen. An inscription on a stone pillar found in China in 1625 gives evidence of a strong church there by 700. However, that church was destroyed by the end of the 9th century. In reaction to views of such men as Nestorius, emphasis was again laid on the divine nature of Christ to the neglect of his human nature. Eutychus, circa 378 to 454, Archimandrite of a monastery at Constantinople insisted that after the Incarnation, the two natures of Christ, the human and the divine, were fused into one nature, the divine. This view resulted in the denial of the true humanity of Christ. It was condemned in a long letter known as the Tome by Leo I, the Bishop of Rome, between 440 and 461 AD, and by the Council of Chalcedon held in 451. The Council of Chalcedon went on to promulgate a Christology that would be in accord with the scriptures and reject those of Nestorius and Eutychus. The council, the, the council held that Christ was, quote, complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, end quote, having, quote, two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, end quote. These two natures were brought together harmoniously in one person with one essence by the Incarnation. This formulation has been the view of the Orthodox on this point since the time of the Council. The views of Eutychus were revived in the Monophysite controversy that disturbed the peace of the Eastern Empire until the middle of the 6th century. Over 15 million Monophysites still exists in the Coptic churches of Egypt, Ethiopia, Lebanon, Turkey, and Russia. The settlement of the relation between the human and divine natures of Christ was followed by discussion of the relationship of the wills of Christ. Did he have both a divine and a human will? If so, were they equal, or was one subordinate to the other? This dispute was finally settled at the Council of Constantinople, 680-81 AD, with the assertion that the two wills of Christ exist in him in a harmonious unity in which the human will is subject to the divine will. The settlement of these various issues in the Eastern Church left the Eastern section of Christianity with little further contribution to make to the mainstream of Christianity, except for the word of John of Damascus in the 8th century Eastern theology remained dormant until modern times. Roman numeral 3. Anthropology, the manner of man's salvation. The heresies and controversies so far discussed were problems mainly in the eastern wing of the church. 
Theology and Christology were not grave problems in the West where such leaders as Tertullian had led the Church to the Orthodox view of the relationship of Christ to the Father and of His two natures to each other. The Western Church was not as concerned with speculative metaphysical theology as the more rationalistic Greek thinkers of the Eastern Church were. Instead, the thinkers of the Church in the West were concerned with more practical problems. This distinction becomes quite clear to any student of ancient history. The Greek mind made its contribution to the field of thought, whereas more practical Roman mind was more concerned with matters of practice in the church. For example, Augustine and Pelagius were concerned with with the problem of the nature of man and how man is saved. Was man to be saved by divine power only, or was there a place in the process of salvation for human will? Pelagius, circa 360 to circa 420, a British monk and theologian whom Jerome described as, quote, weighed down with the porridge of the Scots, end quote, came to Rome in about 400, where, the, with the help of Celestius, he formulated his idea of how man is saved. He soon found that Augustine would have no part of this of his ideas. He left Rome in 409. Pelagius, a cool, calm individual, had known nothing of the struggle of soul through which Augustine had gone before he was saved. Hence, Pelagius was more willing to give the human will a place in the process of salvation. But Augustine had found his will helpless and to extricate him from the morass of sin in which he found himself because of his sinful nature. Pelagius believed that each man is created free, as Adam was, and that each man was the po- has the power to choose good or evil. Each soul is a separate creation of God, and, therefore, uncontaminated by the sin of Adam. The universality of sin in the world is explained by the weakness of human flesh rather than by the corruption of the human will by original sin. Man does not inherit original sin from his first ancestor, though the sins of individuals of past generations do weaken the flesh of the present generation so that sins are committed unless the individual wills to cooperate with God in the process of salvation. The human will is free to cooperate with God in the attainment of holiness and can make use of such aids to grace as the Bible, reason, and the example of Christ. Because there is no original sin, infant baptism is not an essential element of salvation. Augustine, the great bishop of Hippo, opposed what he believed was a denial of the grace of God by insisting that regeneration is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. Man was originally made in the image of God and free to choose good and evil, but Adam's sin bound all men because Adam was the head of the race. Man's will is entirely corrupted by the fall, so that he must be considered totally depraved and unable to exercise his will in regard to the matter of salvation. Augustine believed that all inherit sin through Adam and that no one, therefore, can escape original sin. 
man's will is so bound that he can do nothing to bring about his salvation. Salvation can come only to the elect through the grace of God in Christ. God must energize the human will to accept his preferred, proffered grace, which is only for those whom he has elected to salvation. Pelagius's views were condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431, but neither the Eastern nor the Western churches ever fully accepted Augustine's views. John Cassian, circa 360 to circa 435, a monk, endeavored to find a compromise position by which the human will and the divine will could cooperate in salvation. He taught that all men are sinful because of the fall and that their wills are weakened but not totally corrupted. Man's partially free will can cooperate with the divine grace in the process of salvation. He there he feared that the doctrines of election and irresistible grace taught by Augustine might lead to ethical irresponsibility. The view of Cassian was condemned at the Synod of Orange in 529 in favor of a moderate Augustinian view. The problem raised by Pelagius and Augustine has, however, been perennial in the Christian church. 20th century liberal thought is only a resurgence of the Pelagian idea that man can achieve salvation by cooperation with the divine will through his own efforts. The problem is whether Christianity is a matter of morals or religion, man's free will or God's grace, character development by culture or by a conversion that makes such development possible, a matter of man's rational powers or God's revelation. The church has always been closer to Augustine's view than to that of Pelagius or John Cassian. Although the views of the medieval church on this point were similar to those of semi-Pelagians who followed John Cassian, most of the major controversies were ended by 451, but they left, an indefi- a de- they left a definite impact on the Christian church. The unity of the church w- was preserved, but at the expense of the freedom of spirit that was so characteristic of the early church. Christians were now in possession of authoritative statements regarding the sense in which the scriptures were to be interpreted on major doctrinal issues. But there were also some disadvantages that must be considered. The emphasis on the theological the emphasis on the theological led to a danger that people might be orthodox in faith but not live up to the ethical implications of that faith. Creed and conduct must always go hand in hand. It was also said that many Christians felt that the church might properly resort to violence and persecution in its attempts to keep the faith pure. The emperor, as an arbiter of the differing viewpoints at councils, was able to assert the power of the state in religious matters and end the separation of church and state. But we can be grateful to those who risked life as well as position to get the church to accept doctrines that are true to the scriptures, and we can unite in praise to God for his providential guidance in all these matters.